Luke chapter 11, verse 1 down to verse 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us to hear the words that you have written and now speak through your spirit. O Lord, through this vain world you guide our feet. And we ask that you would indeed lead us to your heavenly seat. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We return to our study of the Lord's Prayer here in Luke chapter 11. We began last Sunday by looking at just the opening address of calling God Father. And from the very outset of Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, we saw that true prayer is anchored in the gospel of relating to the holy, unapproachable God as our very own Father. Because through Christ his Son, we are adopted as his beloved children. And so we were reminded that true prayer is founded upon this this trusting and this resting in the loving presence of God, our Father. And only a Christian born again in Christ is able to pray to God and actually be heard by Him and thus to receive the blessings of His love and grace. And from this fountainhead flows the rest of the Lord's Prayer in verses 2 through 4, in which we find this very practical guidance from the Lord on how we should pray. You know, prayer is, as I've mentioned before, it is the most essential spiritual activity. As breathing is to the body, so praying is to the soul. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that prayer is necessarily easy. You know, if you ever found that praying is difficult, or that sometimes you just don't quite know what to say, it's not because there's something inordinately wrong with you. Because clearly, by virtue of this passage being here in Scripture, prayer is something that God must teach us. It is something that must be learned. I mean, think about it. Speaking, what I'm doing right now, speaking is absolutely essential to human life. I mean, can you imagine if you could never talk? I'm kind of a chatty person. I'd go crazy if I couldn't talk. But what a struggle that would be. How difficult it would be to build relationships, let alone just simply communicate what's on your mind to another person. And yet at the same time, as essential and basic it is to humanity, isn't it the case that we must all learn how to speak? It must be taught to us because we're born as infants who don't know how to talk. And then some months later, we learn how to babble. And then we slowly graduate to the years of a toddler where we we now know how to communicate in sentences. But our command of the language is still a little bit wobbly with some interesting bloopers. And I remember many years back, I knew a little girl who was playing hide and seek with her friends. And she was scared 
that she would be found, that she was hiding. And in her terror, she said, I'm scary. And I thought, well, no, you're not scary. You're scared. Uh, something else is scary, and it's making you scared. But I, I didn't go into a whole grammar lesson then and there. But I imagine that as years passed, and her parents corrected her uh, silly way of speech, and now as an adult, she doesn't make that same mistake anymore. But the point is, speaking is vital to human life, and yet it's something that must be taught and learned over years. Part of human maturation is growing to know how to express ourselves in coherent words. And so it is with prayer. We must be taught how to pray. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is for us. Because Jesus gives these words in response to the, to the, the disciple who says to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now remember that the Lord's Prayer is not just this formula meant to be mindlessly repeated, but it is a model that teaches us not only how to pray, but more importantly and more fundamentally, it teaches us how to think. And how we think is then to be expressed in prayer to God. And so what's especially important is to pay attention here to the logical flow of the Lord's Prayer. What is the order of thought and priority? What is deemed important by its inclusion? And what is deemed not very important as implied by its omission? Well, if we look at this prayer as a whole, we'll notice there are two main sections that comprise the Lord's Prayer. The first is this vertical upward dimension in verse 2, and then a horizontal inward dimension in verses 3 to 4. And I was hoping to cover both sections today, but these words are just so densely packed with meaning that we'll have to spend this morning unpacking just this first section in verse 2. In any case, the Lord's Prayer can be grouped into these two sections. But I want you to notice the thinking pattern that is implied by this logical order. It is first the upward, and then it is the inward. In other words, Jesus is teaching his disciples that when we pray, the very first thing we are to concentrate on, what is to be our highest priority and ambition, are the things that concern God and his glory. In verse 2, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come. It is upward and outward facing right out of the gate. And only then does it proceed to verses 3 and 4, which is to address our needs. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins and lead us not into temptation. And you see, what this shows us is that true prayer must be rooted in in God-centeredness. If we are to enjoy truly restful and fruitful prayer, we must make it our heart's ambition to seek God's glory and God's will as our highest aim. The logic of biblical prayer is to have the adoration of God in the first position before we get to the list of all of our personal requests and petitions because this is teaching us to be less man-centered and more God-centered. 
Now, isn't this such a practical point of instruction? Because if we're to be honest, don't we all have a tendency to approach prayer in this upside-down fashion? Where the first thing that concerns us, the very first words out of our lips, they're the many demands and needs and worries of ours which we want God to answer. And we come to Him in this very hasty manner, and right out of the gate, we just start spouting off all the things that we'd like to have, or all the circumstances that we would like to be different. Now, some of you here perhaps spend a fairly good amount of time during your day and week praying. And you've built a good habit and discipline of the regularity of prayer. That's a good thing. But have you considered that what you have still to learn and what must be corrected and changed is not so much the quantity of your praying, which may be commendable, but the quality of it. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is doing for all of us. It's enriching us in the ways of true prayer for our blessing. And fundamentally, it it begins with getting the right orientation. Jesus is correcting us by flipping things downside up and teaching us to seek God first, to get our minds off of ourselves for a second. Because only then do we really have true peace and joy. And it is the freedom and blessing of self-forgetfulness. And this might explain and suggest to us why our prayer lives are often so dissatisfying. Because despite all the time we spend praying, it may be that the entire time is spent only looking inward to identify all of our problems that we want to go away, all of our needs, all of our desires, and we just dispatch them all to heaven. And after it's all said and done, what's the aftermath? Well, we're just left with our eyes still pointed inward into ourselves. After, after all that praying, there hasn't really been a change in perspective, a change in disposition. We remain just as self-centered as before we began praying. And that's why Jesus is teaching us different. He's giving us the true solution and answer to all of our woes and struggles and anxieties, which is to get our eyes off of ourselves and put them unto God. You see, we all suffer from what we might call spiritual myopia. Or in other words, spiritual short-sightedness. So short-sighted we can't see very far. And we're prone to have, have this very narrow-minded, pigeonholed perspectives as we live. And it's because we're too fixated on ourselves on our little needs, on our little desires, on our little lives, as though those things were of ultimate importance. Now listen, don't get me wrong. God cares very much about every single one of your needs. He knows your needs even before you think to ask. So it's not because God doesn't care about you that Jesus teaches us to focus on God's glory first rather than our own needs. But it's because he knows that the greatest comfort to the human soul is only found in the eternal perspective of seeing the greatness of God and thus being reassured of his sovereign dominion over every microscopic detail which he ordains for your good. Because in Christ, you are his child, and he is your most loving father. Not one sparrow 
falls to the ground without him knowing. Even the hairs on your head are still numbered. Don't you know that you are worth more than mere sparrows? Don't you know that you are more beloved by your father than all those pigeons hanging out on the telephone wires? But that's the thing. We don't know enough. We forget, don't we? We're very short-sighted because we spend way too much time during the day looking at ourselves instead of looking at God. And so we have such a small view of God and a very big inflated view of ourselves and we suffer much because of it. And that is why Jesus teaches us to first focus our minds, meditate on God and the vastness of His glory. Man's greatest need is to get his mind off himself and put it on God. And that is the only way our perspective becomes properly enlarged. And we begin to experience the true hope and peace that we're really asking for in prayer. And so Jesus says, when you pray, begin like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Now, I'm sure we've heard this phrase many times. But let's take this opportunity to actually think about what this means. Hallowed be your name. Well, first of all, with respect to the name, in the Jewish mind, the name of God, or the name of really anyone, was another way to refer to the person himself. The very essence and dignity of the person. In our culture today, a name is just a word. It's just a label that just helps to identify people. And sometimes we run into issues when uh, we realize that there's about five or six Daniels in this church. And just this past week, I texted the wrong Daniel. And I was, very Im- I was impatiently wondering, why is Daniel not getting back to me? And it's because the Daniel I had wrongly texted had no idea what I was talking about. My goodness, I thought we had a lot of Sams. But we, got, we have an army of Daniels, a legion of them. Uh, sorry to all the Daniels. May God add more Daniels to our church. <laughs> but the point is, uh, in our culture... A name is just a name. It's a means of identification only, and we don't think too much of it otherwise. But in the Jewish mind, the name of someone was a reflection of the person's character, essence, and glory. The name of an individual was to be equated with the person himself and thus to be upheld with honor and perpetuated for generations, which is why it's such a big point of concern in the book of Ruth. And so whenever we see the name of God mentioned, it's not just about the string of characters that help us identify who we're talking about. But the name of God is the very glory of God. The name of God is the very representation of, of his reputation and his honor, his renown, all that he is. And that's why in Exodus 34, when, when Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And God said, well, I can't show it to you visually because you'll die. No, no one can see my face and live. But I will show you my glory verbally. And what does it say? It says, the Lord then proclaimed his name. Because this is glory. His name, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so when we say, hallowed be your name, we are saying, God, may you, you, your greatness and your glory be hallowed. Which then brings us to the next question. What does it mean to hallow something? 
It's kind of an older word. Well, to hallow something, it means to sanctify or to consecrate. It means to make something holy or to keep something as holy. Now, obviously, God cannot be made holy because he is holy. But when we pray that God's name would be hallowed, we are praying that his name would be recognized as holy. That his name would be kept holy. That he himself would be regarded as the holy God that he is because he is holy. And by the way, that's what it means to glorify God. It doesn't mean that we are to make God glorious as though he is not glorious and, or that God is lacking in glory and we need to add to his glory. But to glorify God means to point to God's infinite glory, to draw attention to it, to show God to be the eternal praiseworthy beauty that he is by how we adore him. By, by, by how we trust Him, by how our lives are, are revolving around Him, so that those around us might wonder, who is this God who is apparently so worthy of this person's wholehearted devotion and satisfaction? And thus we point people to the glory and majesty of God. And so God is glorified. And so then putting these things together, we might paraphrase this line, hallowed be your name, as, Father, may you receive the honor and glory rightfully due unto your name. May, may, may the whole world know you as Holy Father through Christ your Son. May the world regard you with the reverence and praise that you deserve. And may I do the same. May I not bear the name of Christ in vain. May I not be Christian in name only. But may Christ and his glory and his greatness be reflected accurately and consistently in my life. This must be our utmost concern and prayer. This must take the first position, seeking God's glory the supreme desire for him to be glorified in all things and if this is not my heart's chief ambition today then we are to pray father make it my heart's highest ambition bind my heart to your purposes and will see jesus is teaching us how to think this is what must occupy the the heart and and thoughts and desires of the Christian. And this is essentially what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To, to seek God's purposes and God's will in all things. And that's what the following line is expressing. Your kingdom come. Now, whenever you see the word kingdom in the Bible, at least as it uh, pertains to God, it's not primarily talking about a geographical territory of God's empire. I think a lot of times, especially in English, when we hear kingdom, just because we've seen a lot of movies or read novels about the medieval times, we always think of some kind of a citadel with walls in a, in a certain geographical locale. But when we see kingdom in the Bible as it pertains to God, it is mainly talking about God's kingly rule, his reign, his dominion. 
And so the sense is to pray your kingdom come is to say, Lord, may your reign and rule come. And as Matthew's account elaborates, may your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. You know, so often we pray to God asking Him to simply make our will come to pass. Our life purposes to advance. To help us to move forward with our plans. But here Jesus teaches us to seek God's kingdom purposes. For the gospel to advance. For His will to be made manifest in the world. And first it begins with us in our personal individual lives. We are to pray... May your kingly rule come and reign over my heart and life more and more. May my will be conformed to your will. This is how we ought to pray regularly. Give me strength and power to obey you more joyfully. Let me be more happily subject to your authority. Govern my thoughts and attitudes so that your name would be hallowed. In my life, first and foremost. How often do you pray this, Christian? Given by its first position in the Lord's Prayer, this is the most important thing we ought to pray. You know, it's good to pray for our friends and family who have needs, who are sick. It's good to pray for our immediate needs and concerns. But this really comes first. Because worship comes first. This is worshipful prayer that God is teaching us. This is a prayer of devotion and communion with God. And this is what we need most. This is what feeds us and strengthens us. You know, whatever you're going through, whatever burden or anxiety or distress you're undergoing, what you need most is not a change in circumstance. No matter how much you feel like it is what you need the most. But what you need most is a change in perspective. Such that your will becomes more closely aligned and submitted to God's will. Where your will comes to, hear it now, rest on God's will. I can assure you That a change in circumstance is not what you need. Not because God doesn't care about your difficult circumstance. Not because I don't care about your difficult circumstance. But because God knows the nature of the human heart. Where even if circumstances were to change, it would just be a brief matter of time until we find ourselves bemoaning the next circumstance in which we find ourselves. I mean, isn't this so embarrassingly true of us? How many times have I done that? And I was just so adamant. Oh God, if just this one thing were different. Lord, if you just provided this one thing, if you just changed this one thing, I would never complain again. I promise I will never be anxious again. I will really trust you forever. I will be content. And well, there have been many just this one things that have gone by. And here I am. Still struggling with contentment, with trust, faith, despite all my promises. Circumstantial change is not the ultimate lasting solution. Rather, it is the full submission to the will of God. We have trust issues. 
with God. That's the problem. And so what we need is to trust that His good will and plan for our lives is a lot better than our idea of what is good. The, the, the hallowing of God's name begins with us in our own hearts. This is what we must pray for regularly. Guide my life according to your will. Give me the faith and strength to submit myself joyfully and to trust your character. But along with that, this prayer for the coming of God's kingdom also looks forward to the day when God will fully consummate His rule and reign over the world when Jesus returns in visible, triumphant glory to rule over earth as her rightful king. And so this is teaching us to be a people who anticipate with longing the day of our Lord's return. And what a blessing it is for us as believers to even be able to pray such words with hope and with joy and longing. Because that day is going to be a terrible day for many as judgment is rendered eternally. But for us in Christ, that day is the day of our vindication and glorification. Our own resurrection and power as our risen Lord comes to raise us from the grave and gather all His people from the ends of the earth. I mean, do you realize what benefit this would have on us if we prayed this every day with all sincerity and in truth? We would be such hopeful people if we were to pray, Lord, come Lord, I long for the day of your return. And, and as I pray this, I meditate and I remember the joy that is set forth and stored up for me. We would be such people of peace and contentment. Nothing would faze us because our eyes would be so locked onto that glorious day when nothing else is going to matter at that point. When the king returns, it won't matter what your financial situation is. It won't matter what global crisis is currently underway and who is going to launch the next nuke. History is going to come to a conclusion by that point. And we will commence the age of eternity with Christ on earth. See, God wants us to be a forward-looking people, anticipating and yearning for that day, because doing so will keep our eyes locked onto what is eternally Important and also give us the great comfort and strength of perspective to weather through every trial and tribulation. As 2 Peter 3.12 says, that we are to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Not just expecting it, but longing for it. Asking for that day to come more quickly. And Christian, when is the last time you've really prayed? Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. May your kingdom come. And I wonder how many of us think in such a way where the real prayer and true desire in the secret depths of our hearts is to whisper, Not now, Jesus. Can you come a little later? I have some more travel plans I want to complete. I have some more milestones in life that I still want to hit. There are a few more items off my bucket list 
I want to check off. Please delay. Church, as God's people, our constant yearning must be, Lord, come. That's what the name of this church means, Maranatha. Our Lord, come. And Jesus is teaching us to pray like this regularly. He is instilling in us a spiritual habit and a pattern of thinking to help us be guarded from falling in love with this world. He is lifting up our eyes to the hills that we might know from where does our help come. Our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this glorious Lord will one day consummate His heavenly rule on earth when He returns. This is what life is about. This is our hope and purpose and anticipation. This is what defines our existence and living. To do our Father's business because this is what we were created for and this is what we were saved for. You see, this first section of the Lord's Prayer is encapsulating the biblical truth that you and I, we were created for the glory of God. Not for our glory, but for God's glory. And insofar as we fulfill our design to live for God's glory, that is our true glory. Because that is the purpose of our existence. As God says in Isaiah 43 verse 7, Bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth whom I created for my glory. See, there is a blessing to be found in self-forgetfulness. And so the Lord's Prayer is teaching us to make this our highest ambition of life, to glorify God, to live for His will, and to make much of Him. And of course we fail to do this perfectly, but hence the very reason we ought to pray this regularly, to pray for this most urgently as our highest need. And it's for our blessing that we, that we make God's glory our supreme ambition because it's only when we live and think and breathe this God-centered life that we find true joy and peace and satisfaction. As Psalm 16:11 says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. There is no fullness of joy anywhere on earth. Have you thought about that? How do we know? Because people buy a car, a really nice car, and then sooner or later they get tired of it and they buy the next car. People buy the latest iPhone. And it's really cool. And until the next year comes around, ooh, I gotta get that. Over and over and over again, in every aspect of life, everything under the sun in this earth is not truly satisfying. There is no fullness of joy to be found except in the presence of God. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray like this, to bless us by taking our eyes off of ourselves. It is the prayer of, be thou my vision. You know, isn't it interesting to see the trend amongst the young generation these days? How so many are tirelessly searching for meaning and purpose in their lives. So much so that I've noticed how it's become popular in recent years for young people 
especially recent college grads, to spend thousands of dollars embarking on these long solo backpacking trips for months at a time. And what do they call it? Why, why, Why are they going on this trip? To find themselves. To discover who they are. Now, rather than mocking their efforts or scorning them because it may not be the most financially responsible decision, I actually don't think it's very responsible, but aside from that, perhaps the other way to think and look at this is that this young generation may just be more honest than prior generations. They're at least willing to admit that they're empty instead of just occupying themselves with the busyness of life and, and, and a hard-working career, as good as those things are, but you know, many people do those things just to distract themselves from having to ask the real important philosophical question about why they are here, or what, what this life on earth is really about. And pragmatism can be a very big blind spot. But for this young generation, to look at it glass half full, it seems to me that they're at least honest about the fact that they don't really know who they are, and it really disturbs them. And to know who they are is so important to them that it's a worthwhile investment to spend all their money searching all over the world, literally, for an answer. Which, of course, they fail to find, apart from lifting up their eyes upward to God. But you see, this emptiness is true for all people of all ages and all generations who do not know God as their Father, who do not know why they are here, who do not know what it is that they are supposed to live for, what is their purpose in life, why they exist. That's actually a very scary Christian or question to ask if you're not a Christian. And if that's you this morning, whether you are young or whether you are old, Friend, you have been created to glorify the one who created you by loving him, by trusting him, obeying him, being satisfied in him, and so joyfully being loved by him. That is why you exist. You were created to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That is the chief end of man because he is the fountain of joy and meaning that you are searching for. And you are empty because you have sinned against Him. And as a result, you've been living a life of being separated from Him. Not only now, but you will eternally forever. You're destined for an eternity of misery and hopelessness as a consequence of your sin, which is true for every sinner. But I have good news for you. You can return to God and know Him by confessing your sin and trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to pay for the punishment of sin by His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. By faith in Christ, you can come to the Father to be received by Him in perfect eternal love. And then you can know the joy of praying, Father, hallowed be your name, not my name, but your name. May your kingdom come, not my kingdom. I've tried to build my kingdom for all these years and that gave me nothing. May your kingdom come.
Friend, you can have this purpose and meaning of a God-centered life as you were meant to live. God has come to rescue sinners from their lostness by sending His Son into this lost and fallen world. This is the gospel of God's glory, the glory that we all long to know and to return to and to live for. And so, friend, if you are without God as your Father, come and entrust yourself into His loving kindness and grace, and He will forgive you of all your sin and bring you back to Himself where you were made to be. And church, let us remember the true blessing of the gospel. It is God liberating ourselves from ourselves. The perpetual lie of sin is to tell us that we are happiest when we are most attuned to ourselves, turned more inward into self-sufficiency and autonomy. But that's not the truth. We are meant to find our highest happiness and constantly lifting up our eyes, entrusting all of ourselves to the God who calls Himself our Father to submit to His will and to live to please Him. And so Jesus teaches us to pray like this so that we might daily be renewed in our minds and sanctified, set apart from our self-centered propensities and set apart unto the majesty and glory of God. So as Jesus has taught us, let us by faith learn to pray and to live and to think with God's glory at the center and preeminent position of our hearts because that is our utmost comfort and joy. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for rescuing us from our enslavement to ourselves so that we might know and taste the true freedom and joy of having this desire and expressing to you, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. O Lord, give us the faith continually to believe and trust in the blessing that it is to pray such words. And we thank you that you give to us even the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to remind us of all that is found in Christ, that He is our nourishment and He is our strength. And so as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup, would you consecrate them for the purpose of ministering to us visibly and tangibly and reminding us that you are truly the fountain of every blessing because Christ has come to give all of Himself for us. And even now, He gives to us the sign and seal of the gospel, feeding us, nurturing us, so that we might be reminded to abide in His love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.